The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 3rd, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, the problem with gutting an ethics committee lies in two words. One is gut. Gut's a pretty total type verb. No one goes in for a light gutting, just a sprinkling of gutting. The other word is ethics. The word after gut should not be ethics. It should be something like the opposition or an old rule book or a wild boar. When the word after gut is ethics, it's not great for the gutter. And even the president-elect, a man who is familiar with the gutter, objected to this plan to make America gut again. Trump said other things should be higher on the agenda, and so the gutting was gutted. Now, Trump's tweet was reported as a slam or a rebuke to House Republicans. It was nothing of the sort. Incoming, though not very outgoing, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said that a change in the Ethics Committee shouldn't be the GOP's priority. Implied, it's a worthy goal, just not now. Of course, now... The start of a session is exactly when all the procedural rules are put in place, leading some to wonder if the president and his team knew that now is the only time to change the rules. But this might be the case where not knowing served them well. For Republicans to start things off with easing up on the ethics laws, that was just bad optics. And Trump knew that because he trusted his gut. On the show today, we plan a visit to Palm Beach. Two days ago, maybe two and a half, a multimedia presentation. But first, amid all this Trump talk, I think I wanted to go out and pick maybe the exact opposite American, a man championing the exact opposite issues of the MAGA agenda in the exact opposite version of a dashed off tweet. So I give you Ralph Nader, who is championing the cause of animal rights, and he's done so in a novel length fable asking what happens if all the animals get full consciousness, the ability to speak, and then decide on a media rollout agenda. What happens? Well, this interview happens. Ralph Nader, well... He's a man who doesn't need an intro. If he does, I would say such things as he was named by The Atlantic as one of the hundred most influential figures in American history. Certainly holds that position in my family because my mother once owned a Corvair, the car that was unsafe at any speed. Animal Envy is his new book. It is uh, called A Fable in which all the animals are given the ability to talk and they hold sort of a rolling press conference for the humans. Ralph Nader joins me now. Hello, Ralph. Hi, Mike. So this is this is fiction, and I think it's sort of your second work of fiction because you did that book of about the billionaires saving us all. That was a what if type book, right? Yeah, the only the super rich can save us in quotes. Yeah, we need to talk about what if. We don't talk about what if. We don't kick in our idealism and envision real possibilities. So I, like millions of people, and maybe you too, Mike, have wondered what would animals say to us if they could communicate to us in our language. So in this fable, Animal Envy, a human genius invents a communication application so that the animals, not just mammals, reptiles, birds, insects, fish, could speak to humans. 
uh, I was really inspired writing this book because when I was a youngster, I, uh, I realized I, I just couldn't destroy any animals. And I, I had a chance to end the life of a rabbit that was eating our gardens day after day. And I ran after it and caught it, uh, caught up with it with a big slab of granite. Uh-huh. And it just froze, and it looked at me. And I just couldn't uh, throw that rock at that rabbit. And it was that time I knew that I, I really had to fight for animal well-being. Are you vegan? Almost. I eat fish. Why? Protein. So by the way, that means you're a pescatarian, so yeah, I congratulate yeah. you on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice wordplay, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's good for you. Uh, good oils, good uh, protein. And uh, I certainly don't eat aquaculture nurtured fish. But eggs? What about eggs? Yeah, I eat eggs. Okay, so this is maybe a question or a phrase that hasn't been uttered uh, in the history of mankind. But Ralph Nader, let's talk about bestiality. Uh, You have a pig, a German pig in the book, who is against it, essentially framing the idea of zoophilia, a phrase that she herself objects to, as a form of rape. And then a celebrity animal, the racehorse Rachel Alexandra, who uh, won the Preakness Stake, she's a filly, she comes out, she wants to be able to marry her groom. Um, Do you present, do you have a thought on this and did you present it as a debate for a reason? Yes, because it's called multi-species. There's actually a movement in Germany uh, that believes that there should be a marriage between human beings and certain animals, that love between uh, human beings and animals should be recognized. Now, the, the German parliament was so concerned about this, they had a hearing on it, and they moved to further prohibit it. There's a uh, a group, an association in Germany, and it's beginning to spread around the world uh, of multi-species. It was said, look, a love between an animal and a human doesn't mean intercourse. Uh, it doesn't have to mean intercourse. And so this is a debate, I think, uh, that's coming, actually, uh, Mike. Uh, it certainly is being talked about and in the press. Anyway, the, the point is not to recommend any uh, issue here. It's just to get people thinking about the extraordinarily complex relations that are developing. We know it's psychological relations. There are service dogs. I mean, now you can go to jail if you uh, abuse your cat or dog, and it would be unheard of 50 or 100 years ago. So we want to take it, push the envelope, and discuss all these issues in this book, Animal Envy. Now, if I know uh, anything about publishing, you have, first of all, you, you've written dozens and dozens of books. You have many ideas. Um, it's not surprising to me that animal rights would be an idea that you'd want to explore. So you contract to write this book, not realizing that it would hit essentially when this huge threat to this democracy, Donald Trump, an animal in his own right, comes along. So is there anything about the timing of this that you regret? Well, uh, I thought once the election was over, there'd be this interregnum and, you know, people thought Hillary was going to win. So it's pretty predictable. Uh, No, I mean, this is like running into a a buzzsaw. You know, what's the press interested in? (laughs) You know, it's the latest outrageous nomination, the latest outrageous tweet by uh, Donald Trump. And uh, get ready. Uh, He's going to crowd out everything that you want to have on the media. Uh, It's going to be about Trump. Uh, 24-7. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there's a new cable channel entirely devoted to Trump, uh, apart from CNN. 
Well, it was going to be his own channel until uh, that business plan failed because yeah. he actually won the presidency. Yeah. Let so, me let me give you a yeah. little uh, prediction here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you notice uh, on Thursday, December 15th, he was supposed to have a press conference announcing how he's going to dispose of all his business assets. Well, he canceled that. Uh, he canceled it because he still cannot make up his mind that the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution would require him to sell all his business assets um, other than liquid assets like savings accounts or treasury bonds, uh, sell all his fixed assets, his casino interests, his, uh, his, uh, his partnerships, which were not disclosed because he didn't disclose his tax returns, his flamboyant hotels, his condo buildings, that he has to get rid of them, not to his family. And he is now leaking information that that's what he wants to do. He wants to let his children manage uh, the uh, the business empire, and he would not be told about it. And he would not have any deal-making capability. That is clearly not enough for the Emoluments Clause. He's going to get into a huge impeachment-type uh, uh, imbroglio uh, when he starts his first days in the presidency. Well, only if Congress decides to Im- impeach him. This is the problem with the Emoluments Clause. Who exactly has standing to sue? Of course, if Congress wanted to, they could draw up some sort of bill or charges. But it seems to me that no matter the outrage of the press or the public or the people who are informed on this, this is the sort of issue that, you know, once a few hundred Republicans agree not to pursue it, then it doesn't get pursued. But the media will pursue it every day. Every that day, is true. But- for example, if there's an attack on a Trump uh, hotel in Central Asia, uh, if there is an extortion demand with uh, the employees being kidnapped, if uh, oligarchs here and there in Russia uh, start providing more contacts, contracts, buying more condominiums, the press is going to build it up and build it up. And let me tell you, the moment the pl- polls start separating between the Republicans in Congress and Donald Trump, and they're going the wrong way for the Republicans in Congress. It doesn't take that many more to join with the Democrats to start an impeachment hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. So he's not going to get away with it. He's gotten away with almost everything no politician would ever get away with during the primaries and during the presidential election. He's not going to do it in the White House. Two months ago, I'd have definitely agreed with you, but there is there are elements of Trump's victory that do make me question the regular rules of physics, of politics, the question, at least in my mind, is raised, can he circumvent a steady drumbeat of press criticism? Because so far he has. And so I guess your theory is that even if he creates this cult of personality around himself, if it doesn't extend to uh, the Republicans in Congress, he could be in trouble. He'd be in trouble because politicians, when it's their own skin, and yeah. they're going to lose in 2018, uh, they're not going to uh, let their own skin lose. <laughs> I mean, uh, they'll turn against uh, anybody who threatens their tenure in Congress. The other thing is this. You know, he has said again and again that if someone criticized him, he's going to slam them 20 times harder. Use yeah. that number. And, but now, you see, once he becomes president, the criticisms become geometric. They become hundredfold more than they were during the election. And he's how many times is he going to get up in the three o'clock and counter and counter and counter? He'll become like uh, uh, Captain Queeg or Doctor Strangelove. 
the thing about the Captain Quig figure is in the Kane mutiny, he does demonstrably go over, steam over, cuts the tow line. There are failures, and the failures catch up with him and reveal his personality. I guess the theory is that if Trump gets an infrastructure bill through and some tax cuts, the economy will start looking better, and this will give him the ballast, I guess there's another naval metaphor, to skate through this. And I'm a little worried that all these things that are so true that you're saying that seem true to me just won't seem true to the majority of people. Uh, six months ago, I wouldn't have thought that. Now I wonder. All right. Let's look at his uh, three-part economic uh, program. Uh, he wants to have a big infrastructure program. He mm-hmm. wants to cut taxes for the rich and for the middle class, by the way, he insists. Uh, and he uh, he wants to uh, have a stronger military, which means more military budget. You can't do yeah. all three. Impossible. Uh, so, but he can, uh, but he can tap dance for a while until we realize that he can tap dance uh, for a while. But the infrastructure doesn't kick in for at least eighteen months to two years. You know, bridges, highways, etc. Uh, it takes a long time. Uh, number two, the tax cuts are uh, going to be filibustered if they're too extreme. Senator Schumer of New York has already uh, said that. Uh, in the meantime, he'll be seen increasingly as betraying. Uh, the workers who voted for him, because he is against raising the minimum wage. Um, That's 30 million people working today who are making less in inflation-adjusted wages as workers made in 1968. Those are a lot of workers who voted for him. He has nothing to give them. He's not going to revive the coal industry. That's an absurdity. Uh, Automation and the shift toward other forms of energy uh, are bringing the coal industry to its knees. He's not going to bring back the steel manufacturing plants. I mean, nobody on Wall Street takes that seriously. That's just campaign talk uh, to flip the Electoral College in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. So I, I think he's heading for real trouble where his sugarcoating rhetorical expertise and his emotional phrasings uh, are not going to carry him through, especially if the media starts pointing out, okay, you promised this, 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 uh, Donald. Uh, where is it? Uh, where is it? Uh, come on. Where is it? Where is it? And so he's not going to be able to get away with that. Um, I want to ask a more global question, if I could take a couple more minutes of your time. So I think that your training as a lawyer, as a uh, smart person, you try to make the best arguments. You put the best arguments forward. And yet I've also been reading a lot of scholarship about arguing to a specific set of people. And for instance, to convince conservatives that that there is global warming, you want to emphasize issues of purity and patriotism, right? Rather than just all the facts about global warming. So I'm wondering if uh, over the course of your life, not that you do anything differently, but do you think there is room to make arguments that will strike people in their hearts that maybe aren't the best arguments, but are most effective for moving uh, the policies forward? Or is that kind of a sellout, uh, in your opinion? That's a very insightful question. Obviously, everybody who makes an argument and where the country should be heading or not heading has to appeal to some basic principles. Otherwise, nobody will listen. So even extreme right-wingers have to appeal to freedom, liberty. You notice that. Uh, Mm -hmm. My appeal is to a sense of fair play that I think is imbued in almost all people, whether they're liberals or conservatives. Uh, They don't like bullies. 
Uh, whether you're liberal or conservative, you don't like an eighth grader beating up a fifth grader or someone pushing an older woman uh, who's trying to cross the street to take some crude examples. The other uh, appeal I make in most of my arguments is to the appeal of the greater good. It can be couched in patriotism. It could be couched in respect for the taxpayer dollar. Yeah, and I will note that um, the Stanford sociologist, Rob Willer, who has done a lot of research on how to persuade a conservative or how to persuade a liberal, you talked about, you know, um, arguing about fairness, that fairness and equality arguments do re- very, very well among liberals, but among conservatives, just fairness isn't a, a, a huge issue. You know, fairness isn't their fundamental core belief, so it doesn't it, go as far. Well, uh, I disagree. First of all, if you define fairness with a lot of different broad examples, it goes a long way. Fairness is respecting the taxpayer dollar. That certainly reverberates with That's good. Co- conservatives. Fairness uh, certainly deals with when they go shopping, do they want to be ripped off? Do they want to be overcharged? Do they want to be given uh, food that's basically rotten, but you can't see it until you get home? Well, you know what that is. Then you would make the, you're, you're being made a sucker of, and that actually, the fear of humiliation, yeah. that does have a lot of purchase among conservatives. Right. The other definition uh, uh, is health and safety. Is it fair for an insurance company after getting your premiums to arbitrarily deny coverage when you are sick? Um, is it fair for an auto company to sell you a motor vehicle and they knew that there was an ignition switch problem that could lead to a lethal crash or they were uh, emitting noxious nitrogen oxides, uh, the GM and VW crimes uh, of recent reporting? Uh, so I find when I talk to people around the country, uh, Mike, I get standing ovations from people in the South, very conservatives, people in Boston, more liberal. Because I transcend those arbitrary divide and rule abstractions that politicians love to engage in and talk about a polarized society. In my recent book, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State, I had 24 areas of support if you polled conservatives and liberals, including, by the way, minimum wage comes in at 75%. You can't have 75% unless a lot of conservative workers in Wall Street uh, want their frozen minimum wage to be raised. Those ballot proposals did very well. Yeah, I, there you are. Despite this Republican there, in conservative states, yep. sure. Yep. Uh, even yep. a place like Arkansas in 2014. Uh, so we have an, a possibility of turning this country around in a very peaceful and fundamental way uh, by forging left-right alliance, conservative, liberal. They don't like the anti-civil liberty provisions, snooping, etc., in the Patriot Act. Left-right. They want to break up the big banks who are too big to fail. That comes in at 90%. They want law and order applied to corporate crooks. That comes Mm -hmm. in very high, too. They don't like corporate welfare. The right wing calls it crony capitalism, Uh, taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street and other companies. They don't like this idea where they have to pay taxes, but big companies make uh, billions of profits in the U.S., like General Electric or Verizon, and don't have to pay any income tax. So there, uh, the divide and rule strategy for 2,000 years has been the, the technique of the ruling powers. If we liberals and conservatives band together, we can take this country to where it should be. 
Well, there he is, uniting liberals in Boston and conservatives in the deep south like a a kitten on a treadmill or a baby porcupine. I only mention that because Ralph Nader's new book is Animal Envy, a Fable. Excellent to speak with you, Ralph. Mike, it clearly is in the top five intelligent interviews I've ever had in 50 years. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye now. And now the spiel. On New Year's Eve, maybe you were watching Mariah Carey traipsing around in a high-waisted, bedazzled peach leotard, looking like the sonic equivalent of Admiral Stockdale during the 1992 vice presidential debates. Perhaps you were wondering if Anderson Cooper had employed any strategies or fallback plans on the off chance that Kathy Griffin would say something outrageous on CNN. He apparently did not. But in Palm Beach, Florida... At the Mar-a-Lago estate, Donald Trump held his annual affair, which was off the record to the press, but Instagrammed by many of the participants. There, the menu began with Mr. Trump's wedge salad, as opposed to the Muslim ban, which is Mr. Trump's wedge issue. But what fascinated me most about the affair, which included Fabio and Sylvester Stallone, and not Joe Scarborough, not officially, he wasn't there to celebrate, he was wearing dockers and a fleece, and how dare you suggest otherwise. What fascinated me most was this video that the Palm Beach Daily News put out. It was Trump on stage saying things that weren't much different from what he always says. All I can tell you is we're going to do a good job. Now, as Trump was speaking, peeking into the frame, and this was obviously shot on an invitee's cell phone, but there was what appeared to be some small wings, a bird's wings outstretched right to Donald Trump's right. And to his left, to Trump's left, was a tuxedoed sycophant-type individual who was reveling in all of Trump's predictions that taxes are going down and regulations are going off. That's a quote. And then when Trump said, We're going to get rid of Obamacare this short, bald, tuxedoed man pumped both of his fists above his head. Now, since his tuxedo jacket was still buttoned, this created two white triangles set against his torso. There was the large one from the tuxedo button going up, which was formed by the whiteness of his shirt, and a smaller one expanding down from the tuxedo button to his waist. So this was about 180 degrees of underbelly. But just as I began to fully contemplate this schlemiel, the camera panned slightly and I got to see that eagle. It was indeed the sculpture of an eagle. It was majestic and glorious and standing on a branch. And that branch was mounted to a pedestal. And there was a guy holding this whole ordeal. And he seemed to be relatively young and relatively fit, yet he was clearly struggling under the weight of all that patriotism. And he shifted a little and tried to get a better grip on the glorious bird. But try as I might, I could not find any other information on what that eagle statue was, who the guy was, was an award, what was going on there. If if, if one's available for purchase with three easy installments on QVC, that's it. I got nothing on the eagle statue. I did find out about the enthusiastic triangle shirt man standing to the other side of Trump. His name is Joseph Chinque, and he is the president and CEO of the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences, a group whose purpose seems to be giving out plaques that say your restaurant or hotel or golf course has been given a plaque by the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences. 
Joseph Chinque is a convicted felon who used to be friends with John Gotti, at least friendly with John Gotti, according to New York Magazine. Joseph Chinque's name within certain circles is Joey No Socks. He was once shot and left for dead, the subject of a mob hit, according to New York Magazine. Chinque, as I said, is the CEO of the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences. Next listed on the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences masthead, the Board of Trustees, is in the position of ambassador extraordinaire, one Donald Trump. Trump appears on promotional videos for the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences. Here he is speaking uh, in front of a wall, prominently displaying a copy of Playboy magazine with Trump on the cover. It's a great honor for me to welcome you to the Star Diamond Award. Congratulations to the Academy. During the campaign, when Trump was asked if he knew about Chinque's criminal past, he answered, if a guy's going to give you an award, you take it. The president-elect said, you don't tend to look up his whole life story. However, Trump, close Trump associates, some Trump staffers, reportedly are on the board of the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences. And this makes the many plaques the Academy has bestowed on the president cum hotelier not that surprising. It's just another of Trump's questionable associations that he is not fully disclosing, that he is not divesting from, and that he's not feeling particularly sheepish about as he's about to become the most powerful man in the world. I do wonder if the media can hold Trump accountable. And here's one reason I wonder this about the media. First, let's play more of that event where Trump was standing next to Chinque and he just kind of shouting out some members of the crowd there at Mar-a-Lago. We have Brian and France and the French family here. They own a small thing called NASCAR. I said, what's that worth? They said, it's like owning all 28 teams in the NFL. There are actually 32 NFL teams. Meanwhile, at the same moment, this was going on on CNN. Where's the star player in the Nets? The star player in the Nets? Yes. Oh, come on. That's, I have no idea. Carmelo Anthony. Oh, okay. He, uh, yeah, okay, I know who he is. Carmelo Anthony is not a member of the Nets. He plays for the Knicks. So I ask, who will watch the Watchmen? And I answer, hopefully it will be that eagle. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson produced the gist. They're worried that the Sharks weren't into Shark Week, but it turns out their issue is more with Jaws. They liken it to their soul man. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, would like to know how the Dolphins can even look the tuna in the eye after the Dolphin Safe designation became the aquatic version of conflict-free. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wants to know from the gorillas if they consider Harambe their Gandhi or, you know, just their Harambe. The gist. If I had one question for the animals, it'd be for the bears. And I would want to know what they call the overweight, ungroomed members of their community. Wouldn't it be weird if the answer was elk? Hmm. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.